it's really hard to go international. We have a pretty straightforward international expansion playbook. And even so, the number of nuanced differences of the way VAT works and the payments that retailers want to use and the translation process is mind-bendingly complicated. On top of that, you've got local competition. All day, every day, they're thinking about nothing else than beating you on their home turf. And you're simultaneously trying to run your core market. If your attention is divided and you don't make a big enough investment, you're probably going to end up losing. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I am thrilled to be joined by Max Rhodes, the co-founder and CEO of FAIR, an online wholesale marketplace that connects independent retailers and brands. Prior to starting FAIR in 2017, Max spent several years at Square, where he was a founding member of Square Capital, the first product manager on Square Cash, and director of consumer product for Caviar. In today's conversation, we dive deep into a topic that I think is both underexplored and tricky to get right, international expansion. Max is a great person to talk to about this because FAIR has been growing quickly lately. After launching in the UK and the Netherlands in March 2021, the company expanded into countries like France, Germany, Italy, and the Nordic region. They are now in 15 markets with over 700 employees in 10 offices around the world. We start our conversation with the company's origin story and initial strategy. Max shares a helpful analogy that helped him decide when to go international and details some lessons he learned from other companies like DoorDash and Airbnb. Next, Max takes us through the nuts and bolts of how the FAIR team approached their first international launch, from staffing and operations to how they thought about local competitors. Whether it's the exact sequencing of the hires he made, the unexpected complexities they faced, or how they figured out which markets to tackle in what order, there's lots of helpful details in here. Max also walks us through the operating cadence and strategic planning process that powered FAIR's international growth. I particularly like the section where he digs into their unique bi-weekly business review meeting because Max goes very deep into how it's organized and shares how it's evolved as the company has gotten bigger. We also talk about the human side of scaling internationally and the growing pains that come along with it. To help mitigate the effects, Max shares how he's implemented the concepts from the first round review article on giving away your Legos. We'll put a link to it in our show notes if you haven't read it yet. I hope you enjoy this episode. And now to my conversation with Max. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Max. I'm super fired up for this conversation. I'm excited as well. 
So maybe a place to start would be to talk a little bit about FAIR's journey thus far and talk about the fork in the road when you decided you were going to develop an international strategy and talk a little bit about the chess game that's happened thus far. And we'll use that as an explainer and then we'll dive deeper on a bunch of the tactics. Yeah, we started with a pretty narrow focus at FAIR, which I think is always a good idea. I think it's easy to go too broad in the early days and spread yourself too thin when resources are incredibly limited. And one of the things I always tell my PMs and then other founders is start as small as you can and grow from there, like really nail one core segment perfectly. And so we started with literally the retailer list that I had from my days running this umbrella business. So quick background, the way we ended up starting FAIR, which is a wholesale marketplace, was it was out of an experience that I had where I was a PM at Square. I was running this small business on the side, selling these umbrellas from New Zealand to retailers and consumers in the United States. I was basically like the distributor for this umbrella company. I was doing it with a couple of friends kind of for fun. And so we were going to trade shows and that was how we realized there's a big gap in this market. And so we started literally with just the 150 retailers that bought blunt umbrellas. That was our initial lead list. And most of our early customers were just blunt customers that I emailed and really used as our test bed to prove things out. What that meant was our initial customers were gift stores in the United States and some other clothing stores occasionally would slip in there. But for the most part, it was high-end gift stores in the United States. And as things started to really take off over the course of the next year, is we started to find product market fit. We knew that that was a a pretty small market. It's bigger than most people realize, but there aren't that many high-end brick-and-mortar single location gift stores out there. We knew that we needed to find ways to expand the market. Fortunately, our primary growth strategy, we sort of stumbled upon it, was this viral loop that we built where retailers referred brands to us and said, I I want to carry this brand on fair that they previously had a relationship with. And brands would refer retailers to us and say, I want to move our relationship on to fair. And we had incentives and ways to accelerate that. We built a bunch of tools around it, but that's the vast majority of our growth on both the retailer and the brand side has been and continues to be that viral loop. And what that has done is it's naturally led us into new categories and geographies. And it's guided us to our next stops along the marketplace expansion journey. Every marketplace, unless you are born into like a a magic market the way that maybe Uber was, you're going to have to find ways to expand your marketplace and meet the needs of new customers. That's the way you grow. Like If you're going to start really small, you got to be good at the strategy of figuring out where to go next. And for us, it turned out to be pretty easy because this viral loop just naturally led us in the directions that were the most adjacent. So one really good example of that is by focusing on gift stores, we naturally ended up 
carrying a bunch of beauty supplies because gift stores sell beauty supplies. We ended up carrying a bunch of candles, jewelry, stationery. And one of the largest categories for us now is apparel because those jewelry brands and candle brands that we carried, it turns out a lot of boutique apparel stores have what they refer to as sideline merchandise where they have like little gift sections. People come in, they're buying clothes and they see some jewelry or they want to accessorize. They want to buy a gift for a friend. And that naturally led us to a place where 30% of our retailers were apparel stores. We had a very small amount of share of wallet, but we were being carried by a ton of these apparel stores. And so we said, oh shoot, we need to be carrying more apparel. And we had a bunch of these apparel stores that were starting to refer apparel to us, but didn't really think of us as a place to shop apparel. And so we made a really concentrated effort at messaging, building the product to better support apparel. And now apparel is like 25, 30% of our volume. The same thing happened internationally. We quickly realized that a lot of our North American brands had relationships with European retailers. And a lot of our North American retailers carried international brands. And so we were seeing in our referral loops, these invitations for UK-based retailers, UK-based brands. We weren't set up to be able to support them yet. And so we knew that there was this cross-border network effect that we had the potential to take advantage of. It was always a question for us of if, not when. And one of the hardest things, I think, especially in the early days, is the sequencing of your expansion opportunities. And it's something I've always really struggled with. I'm like a very curious person. I get bored easily. And I always want to do more, 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 more. There's a running joke that I just just found out about it at our company that the saying is, why not both? Which apparently I say that a lot. I didn't even realize that I say that a lot, but it's like a running joke, particularly among the product team that when somebody is saying, should we do this or that? My answer is, why not both? There's a very good reason why not both. (laughs) Um, And I understand it intellectually, even if emotionally I struggle with it. It was difficult to say things are going really well in the gift market. We're still growing really quickly there. And we'd moved from high-end gift into more mass market gift. That proved to be a much larger market than we realized. And there was so much opportunity there to build foundational product and to keep growing there. Apparel was a huge opportunity. We knew that. And we really struggled with when to go international because we'd heard horror stories from other companies that try to go international too early. It's really hard to go international. Even if you have a good cross-border network effect, it is a huge resource drain and a distraction. And no matter how similar you think it's going to be, it's going to end up being really, really different. And it will end up splitting your organization and create a ton of complexity. We'd heard this over and over again from other founders that had tried it. We'd heard the Airbnb story of they basically had to make it their top priority for two years to end up winning despite the strength of their cross-border network effect. We were always struggling with the win question. And Alfred Lint, one of the partners from Sequoia, who was an early investor, had a really good analogy that really stuck with me, which is don't expand until you feel like you're pedaling at half speed until you feel like 
you as the CEO are comfortable with all the progress that is being made in your core market, if you feel like you're still in the mode where you're just like desperately trying to make things work and the whole company is being pushed forward through the sheer force of your effort, whether that's because there's so many problems to solve, competition is really fierce, you haven't got the right leadership in place, whatever the reason is, don't overextend yourself until you feel really at peace with the position that you're in, in your core market. And we made a pretty explicit choice to wait to go international and to really focus on nailing things in our core market. And it was in late 2019, so three years in, that we decided we were ready to go international and we were ready to go after apparel. So we made the decision to do both simultaneously. To that point, that mental model that Alfred gave you, is that when you decided it was worth making the bet that you felt like you had the core humming team was in place, but it was just more of a judgment call. There wasn't sort of anything else other than it feels like we have the core under control and we need to make it this big bet now. Yeah, it was a judgment call. There were a few boxes that I felt like we checked. One, we had the growth model figured out and I felt comfortable that growth was predictable and that we were just going to keep growing in the US and that we built a big enough lead on domestic competition that we didn't need to figure out new things to accelerate our growth. That the things that we had figured out were more in optimization mode than really needing deep innovation. We had a leadership team in place for all the key functions that felt stable and I no longer felt like I was having to put out fires all day, every day, because this person was going to quit. This problem popped up that we didn't know the answer to. My involvement in the day-to-day operations of all the functions no longer felt necessary. It felt like things were mostly working. And then the third thing is we had our unit economics figured out, where I was no longer worried that we would run out of money if we kept growing. We had good payback periods. We had solid contribution margin. And we were a very low margin business. We were negative contribution margin for the first two and a half years. And we'd finally cracked the code on getting to positive contribution margin. And so it felt like the systemic risks to the business, whether it was competition, hurting our growth, whether it was capital risk, us running out of money, or if it was from people execution issues where the organization was just going to fall apart. All of those things felt like they were in a solid place. And that analogy of like pedaling, I think is a really good one. Like when you're going up a hill on a bike, you're pedaling as hard as you can. You're looking for that feeling where actually now I'm on, maybe I'm not going downhill, but I'm on a flat road and there isn't as much resistance and I can pedal a bit and then I can kind of let my momentum carry me forward. That was sort of the emotional feeling that I think we had in that moment. Now, before we talk a little bit about once you decided to start to develop an international strategy, what did you actually do? I'm curious, was there anything else in the canvassing of other CEOs that you learned in terms of do's or don'ts or things that maybe wouldn't have been intuitively obvious to you that you learned in some of those conversations you had in the early days? The number one thing that I heard from a a few different CEOs, but the one that I remember most is Tony from DoorDash. He said, 
go international. You're going to regret it if you don't, because you're going to see somebody copying your idea and having all this success and it's going to drive you nuts, but make it a top level company focus. Don't do it just like dipping a toe in, go all the way. And that really resonated with me. And I didn't know at the time how right he was about that. I now have come to fully appreciate it, but that was one piece of advice that really stood out. And is that because this is a classic case of something that intellectually seems somewhat simple, but when you peel back the onion, it's sort of mind-bendingly complicated, and so it needs to be resourced as such or some other reason? Yes, that's exactly right. It's both the complexity that is impossible to comprehend. We have a pretty simple business to expand internationally. We were able to launch in the UK two months after starting to work on it. We don't have a lot of the regulatory complexity, the logistics complexity. Our business is a lot simpler. We don't have to like build a, a local presence in the same way that a DoorDash or an Uber. We have a pretty straightforward international expansion playbook. And even so, the number of nuanced differences of the way VAT works and the payments that retailers want to use. And even the translation process is mind-bendingly complicated. You can't just go get somebody to translate your website. You need somebody who actually understands the meaning of the words and the way you want to position yourself. Even in the simplest case possible, there's still a ton of complexity to work through there. And then On top of that, you've got local competition. Maybe you're lucky enough that you're able to expand internationally quickly enough that you don't have to worry about that. But there's a real trade-off there where I think it's really, really unusual that you're able to because it goes against that weight until you're pedaling at half speed. And so by the time you actually get to a place where you can organizationally handle all the complexity of expanding internationally, there's a really good chance that somebody else has figured out how successful you are, especially now, like maybe 10 years ago, this wasn't the case, but there's a lot of European venture capital. There's good technology companies being built there. Somebody's going to take your idea and copy it and build a head start. More likely than not, by the time you're expanding, you're probably playing from behind against at least a couple of local players. And that also means you can't afford to make a small bet. Like I'm a big believer in threshold effects where you need to make a certain size of an investment from a focus perspective, from a capital perspective, from a general resources perspective. Generally, an investment needs to hit a certain size threshold in order to work. And I think the combination of the complexity of European expansion or international expansion, along with the competitive dynamic that is likely going to be in place, means that that threshold is going to be really high. Because it's going to be too small and you're not going to be able to get through the complexity and it's not really going to work. Or even if you make a big enough bet to cut through that complexity, if you don't make a big enough bet to beat the local competitors, you're probably going to lose because those local competitors all day, every day, they're thinking about nothing else than beating you on their home turf. And you're simultaneously trying to run your core market. If your attention is divided and you don't make a big enough investment, you're probably going to end up losing. And I think that's happened multiple times. I think it happened to Uber in China. I think it probably happened to DoorDash in Europe. And that's how they ended up making an acquisition there. There's a lot of examples of local companies winning. And I think if you look at the examples where an international company 
came and won, which is probably the more common thing. Like, I think that happens more often than not. But when that happens, I think either the cross-border network effects are so strong, like a Facebook, where it just doesn't matter, or they made a really, really big bet, like what Airbnb did. I think Uber also, and I haven't studied it deeply, but I think Uber bet really hard on international expansion really early on. They were incredibly aggressive. And I think that that has a lot to do with why their international business is so big, both on the ride side and on the eat side. Let's go back to the moment where you kind of look down and you're like, okay, we're peddling at 50%. I feel like we can make this a top three company objective. I'm super interested to explore then what happens next. And, and I guess it's twofold. One is team construction. So do you take existing members and say, work on this project? Do you go hire a new team? And how that sort of fits together with figuring out where you're going to go in order of operations in terms of specific markets next? So we decided, <laughs> you'll understand the joke about why not both. We decided to do apparel and international simultaneously. If we had chosen to just do international, maybe we would have done it a little bit differently. But the way that we approached it was... I focused on apparel and I hired a woman, Andre Washington, who I've known for a really long time and is an extremely talented leader and general manager. I actually had her report directly to me, which was advice that I'd gotten from Jason Kylar, who led the video expansion at Amazon and then subsequently led their entire marketplace business and then founded Hulu and now is the CEO of Time Warner Cable. His advice was like, if you want to get this right, you have to pull it directly to you and you have to make it a top focus. And we full stacked it. And so Andre was leading both go-to-market and product and reporting directly to me. And then my COO and co-founder, Jeff, who is extremely talented and really versatile, he made international his top focus. And we kind of just carved it up. And my background's product, but I'm going to own go-to-market and product for apparel. And we kind of had the, the sense that apparel was a little bit more of a product problem than international, which was more just like an ops problem of like, let's just get this off the ground. And then Jeff led international. We started with a really small team. It was a product team. We called it our launch team that basically was just doing all the things that needed to be done to launch. And then we had my chief of staff at the time focused on all the operational stuff. Again, mostly working through Jeff. I was spending a little bit of time on the product stuff, just correcting a few things here or there in, in our approach and making sure that we were getting to value as quickly as possible. But Jeff and then this small product team and then my chief of staff figured out what are all the things that we need to get launched. They built a Gantt chart that worked backwards We identified the long poles, made sure we had a really complete understanding of all the things that we needed to do from a regulatory perspective, from a product perspective. We started onboarding brands. We started to build out a sales team. And I think the way that we approached that was we just actually did it from the US. We just started having our US-based team. And I mean, it was crazy what they did. They they were waking up at like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. We had one woman who had led some international efforts at Uber, who was in charge of like building and leading that team. And we started building up the base of brands that wanted access to the US market. We started building towards it. The whole idea was like, just get live as quickly as possible, just as fast as we possibly can. 
Let's just get this thing out. Let's not worry about a big launch moment. Let's not worry about it being perfect. Let's just get speed to market was the number one thing that we were worried about. We knew that we needed to start building liquidity. We needed to start getting retailers and and brands on both sides. We started in the UK because that was the easiest market to get live. And that was kind of our foothold. And we actually ended up beating our biggest European competitor to market in the UK, which despite them having over a year head start on us in terms of when they actually started working, we beat them to market in the UK. And that's ended up being a huge advantage for us. It was incredibly important. Then once we saw this success in the UK, we immediately moved on to, okay, now how do we localize? How do we get all these countries launched? But again, it was really a team of people that we already had at the company. And it was a strong team. We, we tried to make sure that we had some of our best people on it with the laser focus of Jeff driving things forward. Our CFO, Lauren, was also really involved. And the two of them kind of quarterbacked it. And in that case for Jeff, was it his 100% focus for a long period of time? Or how was his time divided if it wasn't that? So he was still leading all the go-to-market efforts in North America. He's got a massive amount of scope. I'd have to ask him, but my guess is he was probably spending 50% of his time on it, but it was like 100% of his problem-solving kind of mental capacity. You started to talk a little bit about this, but how did you figure out the second and third and fourth markets and beyond? Did you have a scorecard or a methodology or you looked where there was already the cross-border market pull? How did you all think about that? We did build a scorecard. Our head of strategy, Dan Hockmer, created a scorecard that we used to assess. I think the key inputs were number of retailers that we already had on our waiting list, number of brands that we had received you know, retailer demand for through our referral engine. And that made the UK really obvious. And then it was just GDP was the other factor. When we've looked at other continents expanding to like Japan or Korea or Latin America, we've also looked at the regulatory complexity, the cultural complexity, and made it prioritization of those markets based on things that are slightly more complex. But Europe was just so obviously the next market for us to go after, both because of the local competitive dynamics and because of the overlap between North America and Europe from a retailer and brand relationship perspective and because of the size. And then within Europe, it was the size and then the amount of cross-border demand, but size was a pretty good proxy. Honestly, it was like the UK was first because it's, it's really big and there's so much overlap with the U S and it was so easy to get launched because of the language. And then, you know, it's the usual suspects. It's France, Germany, Italy, Spain. And then we thought about the countries alongside those. So France, Belgium, Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, Austria, there's tighter relationships between those countries. And so those became natural add-ons. And then we thought about the Nordics as more difficult because currency is different, language is more different, but they're big enough and wealthy enough that it made sense to do those next. And so I think that's like roughly the order that we went in. We're about to launch Portugal. We're looking at a few other countries considering you know Eastern Europe as well, but we're mostly live in 
Western European countries. There was a little bit of just like we put our heads down and just did it as fast as we freaking could across the board. I mean, we launched the UK, I think, in February, and then we had France and Germany live in April or May, and then we had the rest of those countries live in June or July. So it was just like we got things launched really, really quickly. And there was another thing that I think we did was just really try to create a sense of urgency among the team, a real execution orientation in finding mechanisms for doing that, celebrating them at all hands, like creating a weekly Slack update, joining their standups, and really trying to inject a sense of enthusiasm, making it clear that this is the most important thing for the company. You are the tip of the spear. Really helping them understand that speed is so important. And the speed at which we were operating in North America at that point was not appropriate for the speed that we needed to be operating at in Europe. Why did you decide that it was so important to quickly expand country by country versus launching in a country, waiting six months, figuring out the kinks, and then kind of slowly moving into other countries? Why was speed so important in the equation? A couple of reasons. One is just marketplace network effects. The nature of our business growth compounds and knowing that there were local competitors popping up all over the place. We have like eight copycats in Europe. And then the other reason is the product actually gets better in France if you've launched in Germany. And therefore, it not only made sense from the perspective of Germany's a big opportunity, therefore we need to go after it, but Germany makes the French experience better and vice versa. Even if you were just thinking about what's the next best thing for France, launching Germany would probably be pretty near the top of the list. Did you find interesting peculiarities in either side of the marketplace in terms of the way in which, let's say, a gift store operates or a wholesale partner operates relative to the way that they behave, the things they care about in the U.S.? Tons, like a staggering number. And we keep identifying more and more things today. I've spent some time over there. The first time that I went over there was like last summer, and I spent a bunch of time talking to customers as I was over there to try to figure that out. To what degree are we going to need to really change the way that we build our product? And there were two things that struck me. One is just how many nuances there are, the payment types that retailers want to use, the words that they use, even in the UK, the words that they use to describe things can lead to us at best appearing foreign and at worst things not even making any sense. The regulatory complexity with that, with the complexity of shipping, especially with Brexit, everything is just more complex. Everything is just harder and more complicated, which is an advantage for us as a really product-driven organization. Like I think one of our core strengths as an organization is building product that simplifies stuff that's complex. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were successful in wholesale in the first place. Like wholesale is a lot more complicated than consumer in the US. And I think we built a consumer grade experience for wholesale that never existed before. And wholesale in Europe is even more complex than wholesale in the United States. And so I think there's real opportunity for us to build that consumer grade simplicity in the experience. It's something we hear a lot from our brands and retailers, like a major differentiator of the usability of the experience. The second thing that struck me, which is a bit 
paradoxical is just how similar things are at a fundamental level. I always say the things that retailers and brands both want at the end of the day is they want to grow their businesses, they want to save money, and they want to save time. If you really boil it down, everything that we do should be trying to help our retailers and brands on one of those fundamental dimensions. Net 60 payment terms. The reason why it matters to give net 60 payment terms, it allows retailers to buy more products because they don't tie up their working capital in inventory, which then allows them to have more selection, which then allows them to sell more. The reason why it matters that we offer free shipping and free duties on international products is it saves margin. It helps our retailers improve their margin. The reason why we want to simplify things down and make things really easy and offer Shopify integrations, it's time. At the end of the day, you're saving retailers and brands time. And it's time spent doing horrible things that they don't like doing, complex, cognitive loady things. It became very clear through those conversations that those same basic needs were there. Therefore, our product worked. Even though it wasn't localized very well, even though we rushed it out and there were all these problems, the basic product worked and we grew incredibly fast. It took us in Europe six months to reach the same level of marketplace volume that it took two years to reach in the US. And that was even accounting for the fact that we were only live in half the countries for half that time. The rate of growth in Europe has just been spectacular. And it's because the basic product, it works. There's a ton of issues. They need to be fixed. And we're working really hard on fixing them. There's a lot of paper cuts in the experience. But the basic product worked. And therefore, we were able to just explode out of the gates. And that was really exciting to see. You mentioned this a little while ago, but can you talk a little bit more about the rituals or operating cadence in those first three, six months that you set up? Any little things that you did, whether it be the way that you handled internal comms or growing that team or prioritizing or anything come to mind in terms of the way that you operated in those first few months that might be useful to share? There's a few key components of our company operating system that we were careful to ensure supported a major focus on Europe and apparel. One is our biweekly meeting, which we call Tempo. It's like a weekly business review where we look at the highlights, the lowlights, and then the key performance indicators for the most important areas of the business. The Tempo is structured around our company strategy, which in turn determines our company org structure. And we have anywhere from three to five strategic pillars at any given time. So last year it was core brand, core retailer, apparel, and international. And we organize the company around those core strategic pillars. And so we have a product lead, a design lead, an inch lead, for brand, retailer, international, and apparel. We have a go-to-market lead for each of those things. In the case of apparel and international, we also have an executive leader who is really leaning in and driving that forward. We design all of our OKRs around those strategic pillars. We write strategy documents for those strategic pillars. We 
build our operating model for the business around those strategic pillars. And then we run tempo around those strategic pillars. And so we're looking at performance versus goals. We're getting updates on things that we're learning that are changing our strategy. And we're really highlighting and surfacing issues, making sure that we're unblocking the work that's happening across those strategic pillars. The second key component of our operating rhythm is our all hands. And our all hands is weekly. We use that as a way to really remind people what are the most important things at the company from a strategic perspective, and then what are the most important things at the company from a values perspective as well. So we started including European metrics in the all hands meeting, and we started bringing European customers in to talk to us at our all hands meeting. We actually literally did that this morning where we had a bunch of Dutch customers join our all hands and I interviewed them. And I think doing that, A, reminds people of how important it is, which energizes the team that's working on it. It also helps to ensure that folks that are in more cross-functional roles are allocating their time. So like our marketing team, for instance, works across a bunch of different things. They know these are the most important things and therefore I should be prioritizing European SEO over fixing SEO for the toys vertical or something like that. The third thing, I talked about this in the context of tempos, but the strategy and the OKRs, making sure that those reflect the focus on Europe and breaking up the strategy document and having a specific strategy just focused on Europe. And then that also informs the resource allocation. So the strategy doc determines the org structure. It also determines the number of product pods that we have on it. The operating model determines the amount of marketing spend and the sales hires that we're going to make. That whole strategic planning process, saying up front, these are the most important things, and then going deep on making sure that you have a coherent strategy and the right resources to execute on that strategy is really important. And then, of course, that's reinforced through the tempo meeting. And then the final thing is something we introduced last year that I think has been really effective. What we refer to as the FAIR 5. Those are the five most important, most complex projects going on at the company at any given time. It's very specifically five. (laughs) I have multiple times tried to make it fair seven, fair 10, and cooler heads have prevailed. And we've said it can only be five. And there's a couple of things that we do with the fair five. One, we talk about them a lot and we make it clear to everyone that these are the most important five, not strategic pillars are big business units. The fair five are things that are much more the specific initiatives, maybe two to three months long, that one person is the DRI for and they're executing a project. It may be cross-functional in nature, but it's like two to three work streams that are stitched together. And I think that it helps to really shine a light on what your most important priorities are. It also is a really good forcing function for urgency on the things that you really want to make sure you get right. And it, it helps to provide visibility to make sure that if those teams are getting blocked, if there's issues popping up, if something's really high risk, that you're staying really close to it. And so we actually made the European launch an F5. We made the launch of all the countries an F5. There's a Slack update that details progress towards milestones. We have a kickoff where we're reviewing in detail, making sure that we're not missing any long poles that might delay launch. 
that's been really effective because Tempo now, I mean, we now have 25 product pods, like 25 sort of simultaneous major focus areas. And so picking out the five that we want to stay really close to has been very helpful in ensuring that those five things get done really well. And we made one of those be European expansion. Can you explain in a little bit more precision or maybe compare and contrast the difference between the operating pillars and this idea of the fair five? The operating pillars are, I'll talk about last year, brand retailer, apparel, and international expansion. Underneath those, there's a ton of things. So within retailer, we have brand growth and brand growth then has top of funnel, onboarding conversion, and first 30 days. And then in addition to brand growth, there's Fair Direct, which is our referral program. And there's a whole group of teams going after that. And then there's shop success and shop management. There's a whole group of teams going after that. Each of those groups is like five pods. The Fair Five are the specific initiatives that one or two of those pods is going after as their sole focus. Another example on the apparel side, we launched this event called Fair Fashion Week. Fair had been really good for immediates, ATS. Like The apparel industry is basically two ways that retailers order. They order stuff right away. I want it right away. That's your basics. And then pre-orders, it's things that have a longer lead time where it's actually like made to order. And so it's pre-booked like months in advance. And we didn't have much of a pre-booked business. So we launched this thing called Fair Fashion Week, which was a pre-order specific event where we offered a bunch of discounts and it was a way to really get the flywheel started. That was another example of like, there were a couple of teams working that it was a big cross-functional effort that was within the apparel pillar, but it was the most important thing for the apparel team for a three month period until we got to launch. There was a couple of things that I wanted to loop back on to get you to explain that I thought were super interesting. One is the structure of the tempo meeting. So the tempo meeting has evolved a lot over time. One thing I will say about the operating system that I just described and any company operating system in general is first, it's extremely important. I think it's one of our superpowers. And second, it needs to be flexible and it needs to evolve over time. You can't expect the operating system that works for you as a 50-person company to work for you as a thousand-person company and vice versa. And so what I just described is what is working for us as an 800, 900-person company. And I think it'll probably work for us for another six months to a year. But I'm typically thinking about evolving our operating system on a six-month to a year timeframe, making probably slight tweaks at the six-month mark and then making significant changes at the one-year mark. So I'll talk about I'll actually talk about the evolution of Tempo because it's a good way to explain how the operating system needs to evolve. So it started out when we were maybe 30 people or 40 people. And it started out as a meeting where we just went through all the metrics of the business and dissected them. And that was it. It was modeled after the weekly business review from Amazon. It was identifying what are all the key metrics and then just like obsessing over them and identifying when things were headed in the wrong direction and diagnosing why. And it was the whole company that attended at that point. There were a couple of challenges that we ran into as we started to scale. One, the meeting just became really expensive. And so we needed to figure out who actually makes sense to attend. Two, it was creating a little bit of a short-term thinking, looking at the metrics every week. And so 
about a year in, we made our first major update, which was to make it a biweekly meeting. And we started breaking it up into the core strategic pillars, which at that time were actually just the three or four product pods that we had. Like it was literally a PM, a designer, an engineer, and then a go-to-market partner. And I think it was brand growth, fair direct, and retailer share of wallet. And that was it. It was driven by the PM, looking at the metrics, talking about the metrics, and we switched to biweekly. That helped a little bit with the, like the short-term thinking. I do think you want it to be pretty frequent because I'm a big believer that like the faster you pulse, the faster you move. The tempo name was very intentional. Like We really wanted this to be something that injected a sense of urgency into the organization. And I would use those meetings to push people pretty hard when things weren't going well, to really dive in, to ask the tough questions. We then, about a year ago, that grew and scaled where each of those pods started to multiply, where instead of being pods, they became groups of pods. And each pod would continue to have a section at Tempo where they would talk about their highlights, their lowlights. We would look at their key metrics. We made an update about a year ago, which was, I think, a really positive update where we did a couple of things. One, we switched to the biweekly version of Tempo being at the pillar level rather than at the pod level. We were at a point where we had like 16 pods and we actually had to break the tempos apart. So there was a retailer tempo, a brand tempo, an international tempo, an apparel tempo. And each tempo was like an hour long and we would do them all as pre-reads. So you would send the deck out, we would add comments and we would go through I did like a time audit for myself and it was like every other week, it was like half the week and the teams preparing for it. We're spending a ton of time preparing for it. And so it was just the value of the closeness to the detail and the understanding of the business was being offset by the cost of all the time. And in some ways it's hard to operate at that level of detail across so many things. You start to get lost in the details. And so we changed the meeting to be one meeting across all the pillars every two weeks. We also added scorecards. So rather than looking at the metrics in isolation, we were looking at the metrics compared to our goals. And that was really helpful to be able to identify how much of this is seasonality, how much of this is we're actually off track. And the other thing that we did was we combined all of them together. And so we, instead of having one tempo for retailer, one tempo for brand, we called it the 360 tempo. And it was all the pillars together, looking at each other's numbers, learning from each other. And and I think that helped a lot with cross-pillar information sharing, because as the company gets bigger and bigger, and especially in a remote environment, you end up with silos forming. And that information sharing across the pillars where everyone is seeing the most important things, the highlights, the lowlights, the experiment results, any sort of quick discussion topics, and then the metrics, I think that was really powerful to create a shared sense of accountability. And then every six weeks, we do a deep dive tempo where we go back to the pod level and it's the brand tempo, the retailer tempo, and we go much, much more into detail and every pod reports out. I think it's somewhat analogous to the monthly business review or the quarterly business review that some companies do. And so that's at the six-week mark within the quarter. And then at the end of the quarter, we have our OKR look back and then you know setting new OKRs. And that's basically another deep dive tempo 
but instead of it being tempo format, it's more of look back on the OKRs, grade the OKRs, and then saying, you know, this is what we're going to do going forward. And then the cycle repeats again. That's been a really positive change. We'll have to update it again, probably moving from pillars and pods to pillars and groups and add another layer of abstraction. And at that point, I think we probably also are going to need to create sub-tempos at a lower level where the groups are then doing their own tempos. That's something that we're working towards this year. So this conversation sort of sparked something. So I want to take a left turn before we loop back and close out on a few of the other ideas related to expansion. But one thing that sort of came to mind is when you have a rapidly growing company, you have this tricky thing where you have a lot of really talented early employees. And as the company scales, what they have access to in their roles often change quite dramatically, which can often lead to people being frustrated or disenfranchised. And I think it tends to come in two flavors. One was sort of you were talking about like in the early days, everyone was in a tempo meeting. And then obviously, as you scale, maybe people can't come to certain meetings or they're not invited to certain meetings and they feel like they used to be an insider. and Now they're an outsider. Another one that comes up time and time again is the company is rapidly scaling and they are super talented, but they get layered or leveled for some reason, given the span and scope of what needs to happen. And so I'm just interested, anything come to mind or anything that you figured out to create a system where those early folks can thrive while also sort of keeping in mind that the span and scope of the business is often scaling exponentially? So there's three things that we do to combat this. It's a really difficult problem. I went through this at Square. I joined when it was like 100 people. I was reporting directly to Keith, our COO, and then like immediately got layered like multiple levels down and went from owning huge portions of the business to owning tiny little fragments of the business. I personally experienced this and there's no way around it. It's hard, but there's three things that we do to mitigate the downsides, which I think the downsides are disengagement from those early employees, ultimately leading to them leaving. So the first thing that we do is every six to 12 months, I give a speech that I think I first learned about from a first round article called the Lego speech. Oh yeah. It was Molly Graham. Molly Graham. Yeah. So thank you, Molly Graham, for this speech, because it's been really powerful. I started giving it when we were like 40 or 50 people. And the basic premise of the speech is when you're building a company, like one of the things that's most fun about it is you get thrown so much responsibility as a junior person. One of the really hard things is as the company gets bigger, you bring on more people you end up having to give up a lot of that responsibility. And it triggers the same emotional response, in at least in me, and I think in a lot of other people as well, is when you're first having to learn how to share as a little kid. And Legos is a really good analogy because it's like you're building all this cool stuff with your Legos, and then somebody comes in, and you have to like give your Legos away. And the thing that I say in that speech is like, you shouldn't feel guilty for not wanting to give your Legos away. Like it is like a very human response. And in fact, like it's a good thing that you want to hold on to your Legos and you want to build cool stuff. But just like you have to learn as a little kid to share your Legos, you have to learn as a member of a startup to share your Legos because you can't possibly build everything that needs to be built by yourself. I talked about before, like the retailer pillar used to be one pod. It's now 12. And the work of that early retailer pod in some ways, it's actually, I think it's like less interesting because it's less deep. You build less expertise, you're stretched across so much stuff than if you're building one pod 
within the broader retailer pillar. I think like the depth and the nuance that you're able to get when you're building something smaller with the more focused effort, in some ways, I think it's more exciting. And you end up with actually way more customers using it than you know back in those days when we had like a thousand people on the platform. The second thing that we do is we really emphasize the mission everywhere. In our hiring, we make sure that we're hiring people that Maybe they, they don't need to come in necessarily super excited about FAIR's mission, but they need to have demonstrated a track record of being mission-oriented in their life. Like They need to have made decisions in, their, in the past that reflect being purpose-driven, caring about making the world a better place and living in alignment with that and choosing to work in alignment with that. We emphasize it in our onboarding. We talk about it in our all-hands. We bring customers in. We do everything we can to make sure our strategy is aligned with our mission. And I think what that does is it gives people a higher purpose and it makes people willing to make sacrifices for the greater good. Because it's not the greater good for the company, it's the greater good for the customer. It's the greater good for the world, ultimately. And I found that that, more than anything else, is maybe the single biggest advantage of being a mission-driven organization is that it makes people willing to work harder, to give up responsibility, to do whatever is is the best thing for the company, that's what it takes. The organizations that have a bunch of people that are careerists, that are just trying to do the thing to get to the next step on the ladder, I think, A, I don't like working at those organizations. Like There were periods where Square sometimes felt a little bit like that. It was stressful. It's toxic. It gets in the way of doing the right thing. It's also contagious. When you see one person doing that, you say, shit, that's the way the game has to be played. I need to start playing that way. And it builds on itself. I think that's why it's toxic. And so having a mission-driven organization, I think, is a really good antibody to that natural organizational gravity. The bigger a company gets, the more and more the interests of the individual and the interests of the organization start to diverge, and it can be easy to start to tend towards careerism. The one thing that I think is a really good antidote to that is people genuinely caring about the mission and genuinely wanting the company to succeed. The third thing that we do is we just have an incredibly transparent culture. One of our core values is seek the truth, and one of the operating principles under that is we're radically transparent. And so our tempos are actually totally open attendance. There's people who are contributors who we expect to be there and who are preparing the materials and who are responding to comments, but anyone that wants to attend can attend. And we share all of our metrics with the company. One of the things that people feel like they lose is that access, like knowing what's going on and trusting people with that information and making it so that there's as little difference as possible between the information that the top leadership group has and frontline folks have. A, it leads to better decisions and allows the organization to move faster. But B, it removes a lot of that status inside, outside that can lead to some of that disengagement that happens as people feel like they're getting pushed further and further down the organization. I thought maybe we could end by looping back to something you were explaining earlier. You talked a little bit about the early org structure to go international. You said it became a 50% plus project for Jeff. And then it seemed like you kind of pulled this Tiger team together with a bunch of folks from across your existing team at FAIR. I'd just be curious, maybe we could end with the evolution of the team structure and org structure as you've been kind of continuing to scale internationally and maybe what you learned or why it's organized in that way. 
So it started with, like you said, a, a tiger team, a product pod, my chief of staff, and then a small sales team just getting it off the ground with Jeff as the quarterback. We then, over the course of the last year, transitioned to having a go-to-market leader who we hired in the UK, who is our head of international, who reports to Jeff. We hired a head of international product, a head of international design, and we basically created a, a pillar structure around international. And then they reported functionally into the head of product and the head of design and the head of engineering. Now, with the whole company pivoting to be Europe-focused, we've changed that again, where we still have our head of go-to-market, but now the entire product team is focused. Like The brand pillar is now the European brand pillar. The retailer pillar is the European retailer pillar. The apparel pillar is the European apparel pillar. And all of those teams now map to their European counterparts. We basically rebuilt the go-to-market operation that we had in North America. It's almost a mirror image in Europe. And now those product teams map to their European counterparts instead of their North American counterparts. Eventually, we will shift back to being global by default. That's what we're pushing towards, where the core retailer team will focus on the global retailer and the core brand team will focus on the global brand. In order to get to that point, A, those teams need to spend time building expertise on how to build for the European customer. It's so hard to think about such a different customer when you're also having to think about the customer that you've spent the last five years obsessing over. That's ultimately where we're going to land, where the international pillar will be the international specific things, cross-border, VAT, the stuff that it's never going to make sense for the core teams to worry about because it's so specific to the international customer. And so if I were to take a step back and tell you the sequencing, we started out just with a tiger team pulled together from the folks that we had around the company with our COO as the quarterback. And we were in that phase probably for six months. We then brought in a leadership layer for the international team, a go-to-market leader, and then a, a product leader. And they were kind of running things together. And we did that for about six months. And then the international business became so big and so important that we have made the shift to where the whole company is focused on international. And then I think the steady state, which is where most companies get to that have big international businesses, is things all run functionally. And you have a global sales team, you have a global customer support operation, you have a global product team, and then you have country managers or country-specific product teams that live outside of that superstructure and are solving the nitty-gritty specific problems on the ground or are responsible for identifying issues that might need to be solved within the specific countries. And that's where we're headed, and I think we'll be there within, hopefully within a year or so. Awesome. Great place to end. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. This was an awesome conversation, Max. My pleasure. Yeah, it was a really good time. Thank you. 